0: Are you in college or know someone who is? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2025. Live steps from the Colosseum with like-minded students and explore the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. Don't miss this life-changing opportunity. Limited spots are available. For more information, Go to Institute.org slash Rome. That's Institute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at tomisticinstitute.org. Okay. Um, First, thanks so much for coming. Um, It's very wonderful just having been on this campus for a few short minutes, uh, that there's a kind of warmth to it and a kind of excitement to it. Uh, So the depth and degree of intellectual engagement or the effort to host a common conversation is, is estimable, and it testifies to the possibility of genuine discourse. I think many people in contemporary America despair of genuine discourse, and so they consign themselves to a less noble task or a less noble endeavor. So to try to host a conversation is wonderful. Uh, even if it comes off you know, suboptimally or less than maximally, still the effort to host it is noble. Um, I'm not an especially controversial person, or I don't typically say very controversial things. Uh, and it's in part because I, I have very few original ideas. <laughs> I like to say that I'm just a, a Thomistic hack. Um, so I, thay, I say things that St. That Augustine and St. Thomas have said just, just poorly. <laughs> um, so what I'm going to propose to you is in essence the teaching of St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas on the question of lying, and they respond decidedly that it is always wrong to lie, or there is no permissible reason for which one might lie. And so that ends up being a controversial claim. Um, But it's worth drilling down on, so it's worth inquiring into. So I'll just set out certain principles and certain arguments, and then in the question and answer session, we can refine those insights together as part of a common conversation. Okay, So we can begin, uh, especially in this setting, with biblical revelation. you know, the the articles of the creed are principles in theological discourse and the way in which God reveals himself binds us as human beings or it kind of takes hold of our humanity and so the principle with which we can begin is namely the commandment thou shalt not bear false witness. When Saint Thomas Aquinas discusses um, this particular commandment or when he discusses it um, under the rubric of of Biblical Revelation, he tries to examine what are the pertinent virtues at stake, right? So what are the pertinent perfections of human character which are going to inform our living out of this commandment? Uh, And what he happens upon is what he calls, you know, truthfulness or veracity. And for him, that's a part of the virtue of justice. Okay, so we know that justice concerns those things which are due to another, and that the virtue of justice is that disposition, that stable disposition, that habit, uh, whereby I render to another what is his due. Now we can get into a conversation of how we make determinations uh, of due, right? Some are by nature, some are by, you know, human laws or human convention in between. There's a category, uh, the, the, the law of nations or the right of nations as it were, which is something else besides, But participating in both of those former two categories. But the basic idea is that there are things which are pre-established, whether by nature or by determination or specification of nature through human reason uh, and human practice. And that as a result of these relationships in which we find ourselves, we owe certain things to others, uh, whether we're speaking here in terms of individuals or communities. And when St. Thomas uh, describes a virtue, he describes its various parts. And in the case of the virtue of justice, he describes various parts which he say kind of share in the dynamism of justice, but insofar as they are lacking in one way or another, they don't have its fullness. And yet we would still recognize in them a kind of virtuous quality. And so he begins listing them. Uh, So like religion, for instance, is a kind of justice towards God, but on account of the fact that we cannot ever render him what is his due, namely our whole life Uh, at least not finally or adequately, then we would say it kind of lacks something of the equality of justice, all right? And he'll make similar arguments for things like piety, which is that justice which we render unto both country and parents, and then for what one might call observance or obeisance, which one renders to uh, superiors of whatever sort. But then he gets into this kind of subdivision of things that one owes to another or owes to a community, uh, which we might kind of roughly call virtues of civility, and these would be the virtues which govern our kind of social and political life. So he names as virtues liberality, right? Uh, A just giving of your goods in generosity. Uh, Gratitude, a just giving of thanks to your benefactor. Amicability, a just giving of friendliness to your fellow man. Uh, and then vindication, which is a just giving of punishment for transgression, but we'll set that one to the side. It's in this conversation that he roots truth or truthfulness or veracity, depending on how we name it. So in his understanding, in his estimation, truth is something that is due to the other and to the community. So what then does he mean by this virtue, uh, this kind of part of justice, which he calls truth, truthfulness, or veracity? In effect, this ensures that our externals recall that justice is about uh, typically about externals. you know it's a virtue, so it's it's a virtue of the will, so there's an interior dimension certainly, but it governs operations vis-a-vis others, whereas like courage, for instance, is about regulating the passions or temperance is about regulating the passions, the emotions, so there's more of a kind of interior dimension to it, whereas with justice there's an exterior or other oriented uh, trajectory to it so with truthfulness, it ensures our kind of externals, namely words and deeds, are duly ordered in relation to something as a sign of a thing that we're trying to communicate or that we're trying to signify. So we're trying to make an adequate recounting or telling of a certain thing um, vis-a-vis other individuals. Okay, Father Gregory, that was kind of muddy. Could you tease it out? With pleasure, here we go. St. Thomas says that this obtains, this state of, um, state of things obtains for, for two main, main reasons. Um, namely, that this is just part of our nature. This is how we are meant to live. This is how we are meant to communicate as human beings. Right? So we're supposed to make right use of the things that are placed at our disposal. And that words and deeds are just such things in the background, if you've come across like perverted faculty arguments, you can see where those might be coming in later. Um, And then also, we have to consider the place that these words and deeds occupy within the setting of the common good, okay? So there is uh, a virtue, namely legal justice, general justice. We hear that um, kind of language shift in the 1930s, 40s, 50s to social justice, which you've certainly heard of, right? Uh, Which is the virtue whereby we regard the political common good or social common good if we're talking about an intermediate institution, like a club, like the Thomistic Institute here at Regent, for instance. Um, so it's, it's a virtue whereby I regard what is common, not in the sense that I am, am assimilated into a totalitarian regime, but insofar as I regard a transcendent good which is dispersed amongst the various members of the community, which isn't any one of ours to cash out on, okay? So truth kind of puts us in this ambiance, where we wanna communicate adequately what is proper to our nature, but we wanna do so within this social and political setting as a way by which to partake of and to kind of beget participation in the good life, okay? Um, so I hope, that's, I hope that's somewhat clear. If not, we can tease it out further. <laughs> uh, so then lying would fall afoul of this, or lying would be condemned as contrary to the virtue of truth and as thereby sinful, okay, because as St. Augustine defines sin, it's any thought, word, or deed contrary to the eternal law. The natural law is our participation or sharing in the eternal law as, you know, creatures bestowed with reason. So, okay, we've described it now as sinful, but we haven't quite yet said what it is. So what do we mean by a lie? I think all of us have intuitions about this. We have good instincts as to what constitutes a lie. We know when we've done it, all right, uh, but, but what does St. Thomas, relying upon St. Augustine, understand by a lie? Basically, when you say uh, what you think to be false, so as to deceive someone. All right? So, there's a kind of object and an end. The object being, you say what you think to be false. Now, you might be wrong, but you say what you think to be false. All right? And you do it with the intention of deceiving somebody. So, leading someone astray. Now, there are are two main reasons which the tradition identifies for which lying is sinful. And here we return to uh, the first that I adverted to just moments ago, namely that it's against the natural orientation of truth-bearing speech acts, all right? There are a variety of uses for human words, for human phrases, for human sentences, for human communication more broadly. There's a variety of uses. And uh, the tradition recognizes a kind of polyvalence to human speech. So it's not this kind of monistic, every time you open your mouth, you need to be communicating propositional truth. Like St. Augustine says, people tell jokes. It's like, it's okay. He's like, whether you ought always to tell jokes is a good question, you know? And certainly, uh, you you can understand the reason for which, especially if you have friends, for instance, who traffic almost entirely in irony, all right? and you never actually know where your friend stands. It's like, do you mean that? Do you not mean that? Is it possible for us to actually have a friendship because I never know what you're actually saying, you know? When you find yourself wanting to lay hold of your friend by both shoulders and saying like, what do you actually love, right? (laughs) St. Augustine has helped you to that insight, all right? So um, it's against the natural orientation of such acts. So it's unnatural and undue that one would use speech which is intended for the communication of truth as one of its valences, as one of its uses, to act contrary to that. It'd be a perverse use of a faculty. Uh, And, you know, we've already signaled this, it undermines the common good. It destabilizes the common good. And here you can think of our current social and political setting. Uh, I don't follow statistics because they're just fancy ways of lying, but I suspect that there are statistics out there about faith uh, in the current you know, kind of um, political process. That's not to speak of the left or the right. That's not to speak of a particular party. But I think that both sides of the aisle, I would suspect that there's very low faith in the political process right now and by comparison to maybe 35 years ago. Uh, Whether that's the lowest faith there's ever been, I don't know. Uh, I don't have an historical consciousness of that claim, nor do I think it's necessarily good to live for past golden ages. But I think right now we we all feel that, we all experience that. Um, And in part, the reason is because of lying, okay? That's, that was the implication. Now I have made it explicit. Um, so on this paradigm, right, so on this understanding, lies are always evil, all right? So they're evil from their genus, which would be a fancy way of saying, like, the whole category itself is fell uh, because it bears on undue matter. And this is actually one of the proving grounds in the Christian tradition for intrinsically evil acts. Perhaps you've heard that language the type of act that can never be redeemed or reoriented in a way that makes it morally praiseworthy. There's no way of saying like I was doing this bad thing but for this good reason therefore you can pardon it insofar as it's not an offense or therefore you can praise it insofar as you see the very reason for which actually makes it to be good. So there are certain things which are just in apt matter for morally praiseworthy acts. They can never be used well. Um, So like if you're trying to build a house, for instance, there are certain materials that you just wouldn't use because they're inapt matter, like asbestos, right? Because you know that if it gets pulverized and airborne, it's a cancer-causing agent. So it's just not the type of thing that you can use for house building, all right? Lying is not the type of thing that you can use for human flourishing. It just, it gets in the air when it's pulverized and it causes a cancer of the soul. So Uh, This is laid down in St. Augustine, it's laid down in St. Thomas Aquinas, and um, in the Catholic intellectual tradition, um, a lot of people will go back to the Catechism of the Council of Trent, insofar as that was a a touch point or a touchstone for many years, Uh, so you also see it enshrined there. Okay, so then, with that basis, that's kind of our framework within which we can work. we can then describe different kinds of lies, and then that'll help to kind of make sense of some of our moral intuitions, because we realize, again, that it's not just block, it's not just lies are bad, because we realize that some lies are worse and some lies are, um, I don't know what the word I would use, less worse, (laughs) I don't want to say better, right? Uh, You see the bind in which I have placed myself. Um, and And then we want to get just briefly into the question of the SS officer or the Gestapo officer knocks on the door, of a family who is harboring Jews during the Second World War, what does one say? Because a lot of these different arguments come down to this precise point, so we may as well just treat it in part, because a lot of of us have very different intuitions about this situation, or, or many have one sort of intuition and many have another sort of intuition, and so it's good to have the principles there so we can host an exchange on the basis of a common vocabulary and grammar. Okay, so three kinds of lies uh, that are typically described in the tradition. Uh, The worst would be malicious, sometimes called mischievous lies. These are lies which are told to hurt somebody. And you can think of any number of examples. You, You might have an individual who tells a lie about another individual in the student body because they are currently in competition for a scholarship. So the one individual thinks that he or she will have a better chance of obtaining the scholarship if he or she undermines the character of the other individual who is there in the running. So a lie is told precisely so as to hurt. And the tradition will say that that's grave, okay? So in, in Catholic moral theology, uh, there's a distinction between mortal and venial sins uh, that we insist upon more in like the East, in, in Orthodoxy for instance, and even in Eastern Catholicism, there's less of an insistence upon that insofar as I don't know all of the traditions to which you pertain, I won't attempt to speak to them. Uh, but mortal being deals death right? Mortal being kills the life of grace. And then venial from the word venial, meaning indulgence, pardonable, the type of thing which is burned up by praying the Our Father or an act of charity, things like that. So a mortal sin is a sin properly so-called, whereas a venial sin is a sin kind of by comparison to a mortal sin, but it's, it's different, uh, and we'll treat that in turn. So a malicious or mischievous lie is grave matter which should be one of the essential features of a mortal sin. In addition, You have to know what you're doing, and you have to consent to what you're doing, and that, taken together, makes for a mortal sin in the Catholic tradition. So that'd be the first, malicious lies. Second would be jocose lies. All right, these would be lies that were that would be like told for amusement. All right, so we're not just talking about jokes here, because I think that jokes are actually a different speech act. Now people will say, well, in the beginning of the joke, you were you were deceiving and therefore lying, and at the end of the joke, you resolved it, but that leaves you know, questionable, the first half of that speech act. In my understanding, I think that that's too atomistic. All right, that breaks up a speech act into unintelligible parts, because there's a kind of integrity to that speech act, and it's a joke, all right? So you have to give the joke its full scope in order to appreciate what's happening. Because if you were to say, you know, Father Gregory, you incorrectly pronounced that 18th syllable in that sentence, I'd be like, that's a little ticky-tack. Did you understand the sentence? I did right? But, you know, and I think, all right, this is not going to be a fruitful conversation. (laughs) Right? I I can stand to improve in my pronunciation of the English language. But regardless, you know, so I think that we should treat things according to their integrity, according to their natures, as they present themselves to the human mind for knowing, to the human heart for loving. And so I think that for that reason, we need not be overly hung up on the first half of jokes. Okay. Now, a lie would be like pulling an extended trick on your friend. And maybe we'll have questions about um, you know, Santa Claus or maybe we'll have questions about other things besides. Uh, but here, I, 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 one friend told me a story in which uh, in their friend group there was an individual who always um, claimed to know the kind of inside joke that everyone was talking about, whether or not she in fact did. So they made up this whole group, uh, this whole kind of like secret society so as to trap the individual in that, like basically to trap her in her own vice so that they could subsequently reveal to her, you claim to know this thing which we made up precisely so as to embarrass you, okay? So that's a jocose lie, and that's a really rough one, okay? So I I don't recommend that as a way by which to win friends and influence people. Um, And then there's an officious lie. Uh, so, So malicious lies are grave jocose lies would be less grave. We might even say light. And then officious lies would be least grave or lightest. And these would be the lies that you tell to help somebody. Okay? Now, there's, a, there's an ongoing question of whether pleasantries, for, instren- for instance, are a distinct speech act. Somebody asks you, you know, how are you doing? You might respond, good. You might walk away and 10 seconds later realize, I actually feel like I was just hit in the face with a two by four. You know, like I don't know any universe in which that could be described as good but you're accustomed to just respond good because you don't want to overburden somebody with a manifestation of your anguish when they were just asking something in politeness. If you were to do that at every turn, they would cease to ask you how you're doing. Um, right, so I think, I think pleasantry I'm inclined to think that pleasantries are a different kind of speech act. They're kind of like greetings, right? So in chapter two of your French textbook, you learn that you can say, bonjour, and you learn that you can also say, comment allez-vous? And they basically mean the same thing, although they elicit different responses, right? It's about welcome, warmth, exchange, common, you know, common life, right? But not to say that you don't care, but you also don't care in the way in which a strict reading of the grammar and vocabulary would seem to suggest, okay. Um, so officious lies would be lies told to help somebody, uh, whether to, um, well, there are various ways in which you can help somebody. The one that we're going to get to is the Gestapo knocking at the door. So then we have this comparative standard, whereas just, just speaking about the acts themselves, all right, and prescinding from the different circumstances of the act or your different interior dispositions as a moral reasoner, we would say that malicious lies are grave and therefore fodder for mortal sin and that jocose and officious lies are light, and therefore fodder for venial sin. So then, the big question is whether officious lies can be told in grave circumstances. Um, Many people have argued this question, and they draw very different conclusions. So I don't think that this is just obvious, all right? And as a result of which, I don't think that one ought to take in this conversation the moral high ground and pronounce from above. Uh, so, but, but I do think that it's worthwhile engaging with the tradition uh, because my general disposition is that we're judged by the tradition. So you hear the story, which is told, of a random college campus in which an individual raised you know, his hand in the back and said this, that, or the other about uh, the plot of Othello. He's like, this Iago character, he seems insufficiently motivated. I don't know that I can really accept like, Othello as nihilistic death text. So Shakespeare seems to have made a mistake. To which the professor is said to have responded, Uh, it is not you who judges shakespeare it is shakespeare who judges you right so we, we come before the tradition with a certain disposition of okay i am judged by the tradition right i want to find myself in the current of the tradition um and i want to at least determine what the fence is keeping in or what the fence is keeping out before i rule to tear it down that's that's the basic idea um and when i use tradition i just kind of use it in the general sense so some people will think Tradition means the first seven or eight ecumenical councils and then subsequent clarifications thereupon. other, other people will mean different things typically here i 'm just referring to biblical, biblical revelation interpreted by Saint Thomas Aquinas uh, well, St. Augustine of Hippo and then Saint. Thomas Aquinas, which I realize is one particular the use of tradition, which goes to show yeah to mystic hack okay so um, <laughs> so some have argued that you certainly ought to lie and then Others have argued that you certainly ought not to lie. And then still others have argued something in between. Um, So the principle here, which I'm going to explicate is that you can't do evil, that you can't do evil in order that good may come. Okay, you can't do evil in order that good may come. St. Augustine has two treatises on the question of lying, um, both of which he says in his retractationes, I stand by it, although with respect to the first, which he probably penned around 395. He said, ah, I mean, it's kind of overly complex. Maybe I ought not, but never mind. Send it through. Um, So in, in that particular treatise, he begins with this kind of question. Ought one kill the soul so as to spare the body? Ought one kill his own soul so as to spare the body of another? The mouth that lies slays the soul. So the basic idea that we're saying here is if one were to lie, and if lying were sinful, to spare another, you would be imperiling your own immortal life, right? your own eternal life, for the sake of one's temporal life. That's the basic Augustinian argument, which he begins with and then will expand upon in various directions. And what he draws our attention to is, like, where does this stop? Where does this stop? For instance, could one steal in order? to save an individual? And you might think, all right, I've encountered things in the Christian tradition about the universal destination of goods, about the superfluum, about how you can take things from rich people in certain circumstances. So we're not talking about that. He's saying like, strictly speaking, are you able to steal in order to protect somebody? And then he advances it further. Would you commit adultery in order to protect somebody? Okay, you're thinking, now you're really leaning on my intuitions pretty hard here because a light lie doesn't seem to be in the same moral category as adultery. For St. Augustine though, they're both intrinsically evil. Again, the types of things which cannot be done in any time, place, or circumstance because of the nature of the act. So, the way that St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas and those who interpret them try to make sense of our moral intuitions because I think many of us, our moral intuitions are like, yeah, I, I ought to protect these people. And I don't know what I'm gonna say, but it's probably gonna sound like, bad, no, you know, because I'm going to be nervous, I'm going to be afraid, I'm going to be, insufficiently prepared for this eventuality. Who knows what will happen, but I, I ought to do something, okay? Um, so the way that we would make sense, I think, a way to make sense of this moral intuition is to say it's a, it's a venial sin, all right? It's a venial sin. So not a mortal sin, not the type of sin which deals death to the life of grace in the soul. And when St. Thomas Aquinas describes Mortal sin, he says it's sin simpliciter. Maybe you've come across that word in a philosophy class, but sin simply so-called, sin in the strict sense, sin in all of its robust understanding. Uh, But then he says a venial sin is a sin only secundum quid, which would be like after a fashion, improperly so-called, as it were, okay? And so the idea here is that it's not like if you take a bunch of venial sins, they make a mortal sin, they don't. They might cool the flame of charity somewhat, all right? They might deaden your conscience somewhat, but they don't become a mortal sin. Because in his understanding, they're not sins, strictly so-called. So picture yourself on a car ride, you have a certain destination. A mortal sin is like getting in a fiery wreck. All right? A venial sin would be like taking one exit off and being like, ah, alright. And when you look at your GPS, it adds three minutes to your time. All right, So it's infelicitous, but it's not death-dealing. So it's the type of thing that inhibits one's attainment of the end or disposes contrarily to it, but it doesn't replace the end, it doesn't upend the end. So um, yeah, I think that the reason for which the Christian tradition will say this is a sin is because it accounts for the data and it doesn't involve entirely retooling our moral taxonomy so as to make sense of a particular instance in which our moral intuitions are strong. And so the rejection of mortal sin is obvious, but I think that the rejection of venial sin also, also has to be held in place insofar as it extends that logic into you know, every facet of our human experience, uh, because this is the testimony of the Christian saints, that we don't want to touch sin with a 10-foot pole would be the basic idea. Okay, So St. Augustine is aware of the fact that there are various Old Testament examples which seem to attribute praise for what looks in fact like a lie. So, um, right, Genesis 18, the visitation of the three men, angels, triune God at the terebinth of memory, and they announce that Sarah is to conceive a son. She laughs. They say, why are you laughing? She says, I didn't laugh, right? It's like, what a bizarre text. <laughs> or uh, Abraham to Abimelech, you know, she is my sister. Uh, she's also his wife, and when Abimelech approaches her to take her to his bed, right, he realizes, well, when he sees Abraham with her, he realizes that this could have gone very wrong and very poorly for his people. Or Jacob approaching Isaac clothed in animal fur so as to appear like the elder son so that he could obtain the blessing. And when asked directly, you know, like, who are you, in effect, he lies, okay? Okay. Um, and then the Hebrew midwives is actually the one that comes up most often. So at the beginning there of the book of Exodus, the Hebrew midwives are told to abort uh, the Hebrew children and they don't uh, and say that they do. Um, I've forgotten their names, Puah and Shipra maybe. Uh, or like Rahab who shelters the scouts who come to reconnoiter the land. She puts up the red thread. At, right, so there, or Judith, right? Uh, when she kills or sees to the killing of Holofernes. So there are various instances. And basically, St. Augustine has a variety of ways to account for this biblical tradition. He says, notice it's principally in prophetic books, and so whether are to be taken as prophetic signs on the one hand. He also says, well, we're talking about our disjunct acts. He doesn't use that language. I'm using that language. But basically, you have a lie, and then you have basically um, an act informed by charity or an act of love. And so God is not praising the lie. He is praising the love. And insofar as the lie is a venial sin, and the love is you know, meritorious or praiseworthy, we can say in a certain sense that that burns up whatever imperfection might be attached to the venial sin. So they're disjunct acts, they're not coordinated. So rather than relaxing the absolute prohibition on lying and having it such that the definition of lying doesn't cover such acts, um, the the tradition would argue that it's better to encourage growth in the virtue of prudence uh, with a kind of moral creativity. Um, And I think this raises before our our kind of minds and hearts, the question of what the moral life is and what the moral life is not, because sometimes we get in the pattern of thinking about the moral life as just those things which are explicitly religious, and then everything else is not the moral life. Okay, so like for instance, if you do things that are courageous for the love of God, like suffering persecution, good, that pertains to the moral life. But if you have difficulty engaging in conversation because of a kind of natural timidity, that doesn't pertain to the moral life. I would challenge those intuitions because I think that they both pertain to the moral life. I think that there's a part of our moral flourishing which entails a kind of creativity. Remember St. Thomas, in listing these different parts of justice, he listed liberality, gratitude, affability, things that we don't often think about, but writing thank you notes is part of your moral flourishing. Engaging people in conversation is part of your moral flourishing. Let's say that you're in a conversation group of three or four and someone comes on the periphery, evidently new to whatever social setting and and looking for conversation. I think it's part of the moral life, it's part of the virtuous life to invite that person in, to welcome them into a space in which they can be at home and which they can flourish. So I think that when we put these types of questions in dichotomous fashion and you say either you sin, excuse me, either you lie and protect the lives of those whom you're sheltering, or you don't lie and you expose them to death, uh, we're not thinking of all the options because we're not thinking about the full range or scope of our moral lives, which entails a kind of dynamism, which entails a kind of creativity, which I would say, in the practical order, issues from the virtue of prudence. So there's a kind of general sensibility, which I think is sound, certainly applies in many cases, that, that most of us are just, we're not that smart, we're not that clever, we're not that witty, and so we have difficulty thinking on our feet. We often find ourselves 20, 30, 40 minutes afterwards saying, oh, I should have said that. That would have been such a zinger, you know, yada, yada, that's and such. Um, so the being able to lie, rejiggering the moral taxonomy so that we can just say lie, lie boldly, is just easier. And so we should give people an easy way to dispense of their moral duty in this particular situation. But, and I would submit to you, what, what if we learned to be clever, witty, you know, quick on our feet. There's a part of the virtue of prudence which St. Thomas calls shrewdness. We typically think of shrewdness in a negative sense, the Latin word is solertia, but basically it's a kind of moral dynamism that when it comes time to make a quick decision, you see a car accident just right in front of you on the corner and you see that this car is smoking and that this driver is not responsive, rather than freezing, You launch, and you help the person, and you think there might be a back injury, so I'm gonna try to stabilize the neck. You know, you may have had some training, like a CPR class in 10th grade, but it's the type of thing which launches you. And we can actually grow in the type of thing which launches us. Now some of that is just temperamental or constitutional, but it can also be trained. And so when they come knocking, you can do any number of things. You can say yes, or you can say no, but I'd be concerned about a moral universe in which you were encouraged to say no, because that's not just that moment that's pertinent. You will have lived a whole life up to that moment. And the question is whether you've been training yourself to lie or whether you've been training yourself to be morally creative, to be quick on your feet. So returning then to this Gestapo situation, I think that the false dichotomization actually obscures from us the textured nature or the more complicated nature of the moral reality. Um, Because, yeah. So social discourse has already broken down, political discourse has already broken down to such a point that armed men seeking to exterminate an entire ethnicity, race, or religion are knocking at your door. So clearly it's time for moral creativity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. so um, re- like, for one, will they even believe what you say? These men are trained killers, right? They are inured to the truth. They are hard- hardened by their experience and they've gotten in the habit of asking this question multiple times to people who are not comfortable with death. All right? So they will probably see through you if you try to lie. Um, so you might imagine someone responding in alternate fashion. So like for instance, like, what does it matter that I say? And I think that this is one of the, the Augustinian options. What does it matter what I say? You won't believe me. Regardless of what I say, you won't believe me. There's no point trying to convince you one way or the other. Certainly, I prefer that you don't enter my house, since I like my house, my carpets, to like not be muddied by your Gestapo boots. right? <laughs> But something tells me that you may end up coming into my house and that I can't do anything about that. So would you like me to prepare you tea? You know, um, you, you can imagine somebody very cheeky person doing something like that. I would not be fast enough to do that. So St. Augustine says, well, there's the Bishop of Tagaste, who, when finding himself in a similar situation with respect to heretics, he just said, I know exactly where they are, and I'm not going to tell you. So you just take the ball out of their, their court and put it wholly in your court. And you say, my rules, I know exactly where they are and I'm not gonna tell you. And he he was subjected to torture. But in the course of the torture, he converted his captors because they saw the excellence of the truth to which he testified, all right? So, final thoughts and then we'll have time for questions. I think that we need to be sensitive to the moral universe in which we live because we're not looking principally to produce outcomes. All right, we are not optimizers or maximizers. Right? Robots do it better at this stage of the game. I've seen them play ping-pong, and it's incredible. All right? um, so we're, we're looking to produce saints. We're looking to, you know, produce... I mean, that sounds so crass. We're looking to become saints. In accord with the grace, the virtue, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which God bestows in generous abundance, we're looking to become saints. And there's a question here, a real question here of integrity. And there's a risk that when you lie, when you give away your word, that you lose a hold on your own self possession or God's possession of you. Because if you begin lying to others, who's to say that you won't lie to God, that you won't lie to yourself? St. Augustine says that lying produces a man whose heart is double. Lying produces a man whose heart is double. There's a Thomistic philosopher, a Dominican friar who passed a few years back named Father Lawrence DeWan, and he says that desire to kind of rejigger the moral taxonomy arises from a conception of the moral agent as much more, quote, an engineer of reality than a cooperator with the, author- with the author of reality. It acknowledges certain given ends or goals of life, but sees less than it should of the givenness of nature and natures. So I think that we, we should cultivate a sensibility according to which we work within the bounds of God's providence, God who is genuinely provident, who does not set snares for his beloved children, who does not permit them to be tempted beyond their strength, but in whatsoever situation provides a way through, right? And in permitting evil to befall, always affords that some good can be drawn forth from it. So, yeah, there's always a way through for the saint. St. Thomas Aquinas, if you've ever come across this moral tradition which talks about perplexity, genuine perplexity, the idea that regardless of what you do, you will sin, He does not not abide that. He does not envision the moral universe such that such perplexus is possible. So I think that we have strong moral intuitions and they're not to be completely set aside, but they are to be judged by the tradition, they are to be weighed, and as a result of which, sifted, right? potentially purified. Um, our 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 moral intuitions are sometimes compromised by a kind of utilitarian, or consequentialist worldview. Because as much as we might say, we are not like our contemporaries, we are like our contemporaries. Everyone can just reach into his or her pocket, pull out an iPhone, and then look at it and say, I am like my contemporaries, right? It's, we're in conversation with the modern world, and so we learn to speak with its vocabulary and in its grammar. And I think that our moral intuitions are pressed, especially when it involves the suffering of others. So if you've read the book Silence by Shisaku Endo, or you've seen the Martin Scorsese film adaptation of it, you realize this is the essential point. This is the diabolical logic whereby these men were made, or one man in particular was made to renounce his faith because he was made to abide the suffering of those for whom he came in service. Stanley Harawas, excuse me, Stanley Hauerwas has a principle and he says that if you really believe something to be true, not only do you have to be willing to suffer for it, you have to be willing that Others suffer for it too, which is terrible. We just have to acknowledge that at the outset. It is terrible. That's not a comfortable thing. That's not that's not a thing about which we are all here excited. All right, but every mother recognizes this as she welcomes children into the world. She before she welcomed children into the world, she might have said to herself, You know, when they come, you know, with hooks and burning brands, I will profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then she sees her child and they say, don't ask the child from me, though. And that's a totally normal maternal response. And it, so it's, it's terrible to think in those terms. It's, it's awful to think in those terms. But I, I believe that that is the implication, not just of principles and arguments, but of faith, right, but of a relationship with the Lord Jesus. And I think that we all experienced this in a pretty broad-ranging cultural way three years ago. So in various religious traditions, this was navigated in different ways, but... Church closings for about three months at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic showed our difficulty in hosting this type of conversation because it was often couched in terms of protecting the weak and the vulnerable, many of which weak and vulnerable didn't ask to be protected, many of which weak and vulnerable probably would have preferred to be at their Sunday church service or mass. And we had difficult, great difficulty navigating that conversation because we have great difficulty asking others to suffer for something in which we believe. So, I think that these limit cases, they really strain our moral intuitions, but they cause us to engage with the principles and with the arguments. And at the end of the day, I think that we profit from appealing to the intuitions of the saints, like Saint Augustine, like Saint Thomas Aquinas, like Saint Dominic Savio, who said, death before sin, or like Saint John Henry Newman, who said, it is infinitely preferable that the whole universe be destroyed than in a single sin be committed, which is stark. So I hope that these principles and arguments help you to engage uh, the issue at hand, and I gladly welcome your questions. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thamisticinstitute.org donate.